This is ESPN Crick Info. Bowl at Boys. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Bowl at Boys. This is ESPN Crick Info. I have with me Mr. Jeffrey Boycott, who must be a happy man after England won the Ashes, isn't it, Jeffrey? Yes, I think everybody in England is wonderfully surprised. Uh, even the bookmakers put Australia to win. I put my hand up. I thought Australia would win uh, 2-1. And it's been wonderful surprise. And I think it was very, very important for English cricket that we played well. Uh, and to actually win, and win so easily, as it were, 3-1 and 1 to go, uh, has actually done wonders for a, a sort of good feeling throughout the country. Because... We couldn't afford to play badly again after Australia. What, a year and a half ago, we lost 5-0 very badly. and We needed a good performance. What we got was way above what we expected. If you're honest, nobody really expected England to win and to win so well. So it, it's a terrific achievement to the, for the players. It's left everybody in the country who supports England feeling better about our cricket. There's a, there's a new spring in the step about the players, about the people supporting them. And we're all looking forward to, to going away this winter and giving a better account of ourselves in the winter than we did in Australia. We've got two tough series. We've got UAE to come. Pakistan in UAE, mm, that's not too easy. And, uh, and then South Africa in South Africa, that's pretty tough. Well, yes, one test also to go before those tours, the fifth test at the Oval. Let's take a few questions on uh, the Ashes and a couple of careers that are coming to an end. The first question was sent by Sushant from India. He says, given that Australia have had a great team for an extended period of time, a lot of talented players could not break into the side. Coupled with the Australian selection policy of giving people debuts late in their careers, this seems to have led to a big problem where the team has to be turned over again and again fairly quickly. What do you think is the best way to select and blood players in order to build a team that plays well in different conditions over a long time? Good question. I'll come to the end of your question and the end of my answer. But look, I'm not looking at it quite like you. In the 13-14 winter, our winter, Australian summer, on the normal hard true Australian pitches, Johnson's fast bowling blew England away with pace and bounce England's batsmen couldn't handle him. They were pathetic and lost easily 5-0. Probably the worst defeat I've ever seen by an England team in 50 years I've seen playing and watching. And then not long after, they come here to England a year and a half later. And in England this year, we've got normal English-type pitches, some sideways movement off the seam, some swing in the air because our juke ball is different to the kookaburra in Australia as a bigger seam. And the swing and seam, but no pace or extra bounce. And the Australian batsmen couldn't handle it. They were pathetic. The only time we saw anything like the Australian team, who have been bashing lots of runs in the last 12 months in Test cricket, was on the flat pitch at Lords when there was blue sky. It was hot. So there was no sideways movement in the air or off the pitch. And the Australian batsmen were very comfortable in what were similar conditions at home with blue sky, hot sunshine, and they made a big total. That big scoreboard pressure on England paid off with England having tired legs and tired minds. They collapsed, Australia won, and that was their one victory. To me, all that is amazing. It really is amazing to me 
how both sets of batsmen couldn't adjust their technique to different conditions. Touring teams from Australia and England have been swapping tours with each other for well over 100 years. And the best players have learned how to adjust. Now, one-day cricket, in my opinion, has had a lot to do with the failure of many batsmen, both sides, not being able to adapt or change their technique to work out a different way to play in different conditions. Many years ago, we used to play on uncovered pitches in England and used to have to play swing, seam, uh, the turning ball on wet pitches, the turning ball on dry pitches. Then you get a flat, good batting pitch. You get all kinds of things. Your mind was trained to adapt, to learn a tre technique that suited you better. Play forward when the ball is keeping low. In Australia, stay back a bit more because the ball bounces more and comes through faster. And we all could change. Yes, we had to work at it. It didn't come easily. But what has happened now, there's so much one-day cricket for kids starting, and I mean real kids, teenagers, young players, there's no uncovered pitches. All they get is flat pitches to play county cricket on, or they'll get flat pitches to biff bang wallop on, on, in one-day cricket of 20 overs or 50 overs. And the same in Australia. All they get is flat pitches and have to whack it. And so these different conditions have suddenly found them out, and that's all I can say to you. But the pitches are the crucial factor. And maybe some of the players' players aren't that good. So, Jeffrey, what's the best way to select and blood young, young players like Sushant asked you? Well, you can't answer that. The best player is to get pitches of varying conditions. That's the best way. So they learn not to play just one way. They learn to adapt. They learn to have to think about the changing conditions. And they're not doing that. One-day cricket doesn't make you think. Not quite the same. The only thing you're thinking about in one-day cricket is how many fours can I get? What's the best scoring rate? Everybody's telling you you make 20 off 10 balls, brilliant. Your scoring rate's 200. That doesn't mean a toss in, in test match cricket. It's about how many runs, playing an innings, playing fast bowling, which is different. And... It's a totally different game altogether, the thinking process of playing a test match to being a, a crash-bang-wallet player. The best example I can ever give you, you've got one in India. Suresh Rainer is one of the greatest one-day players you'll find in the world and has been for seven or eight years. He can't play test match cricket. Why? Because he can't play fast bowling. Soon as he's round his neck, his head, he's totally hopeless. There's your perfect example. And I'm not anti him. I respect and admire his one-day cricket. He's fantastic. If I was picking a World eleven to play 20 overs, he'd be one of the first names on the sheet with Tony. But test match cricket, he won't be anywhere near the team. Well, yes, he does have the numbers in one days and T20s to support what you're saying. And let's shift focus from Australia to England now. Ian Hooper from Australia asked this question. In the past, Alistair Cook has looked like the proverbial kangaroo in the headlights as captain. Very defensive, relying on messages from the boundary, dominated by Anderson and Broad. But in this series, he's looked like he's, much, he's been much better. The only difference I can see is the coaching team. I'm starting to think that Andy Flower had such a grip on the team that Cook was reduced to being a spectator. Any thoughts? 
Well, I'm not going to. I'm going to uh, criticise Andy Flower because I'm not in the dressing room and never have been, and I never try to get close to the players or the coaches to get information or anything. I watch and try and study and work out for myself. So it's not easy to explain, but I'll try. In West Indies, in April, England had three test matches, and Captain Alistair Cook and Moores were so conservative in their captaincy and their selection as to be absolutely stupid. They didn't pick Adil Rashid, the leg spinner, on slow-turning pitches, which is unusual in uh, West Indies, I know, but that's what they were, three slow-turners. And I know that even before the tour started, Alistair didn't want Rashid in the team. I know from what he said to people. He was defensive on tour, made these poor selections, like another poor selection. He picked Trot to open the innings. Trot has been a wonderful batsman at number three for England, but he wasn't mentally ready to play. He, was, he should never opened. He's never opened in his career. He was a total failure. And I think, I know they're fairly close, that he allowed his personal feelings at all to affect his judgment. And you can't do that as captain or selector or, or manager or coach. They can have your friends have to play, but when you're talking cricket, you have to pick your worst enemy. But come the end of play, sorry, I don't want to drink or go to dinner with him, but I pick him because he's a good cricketer. And you have to be able to do that. And yet, when he come to England, he wasn't playing initially in the one-dayers. And the one-dayers seemed to change everything against New Zealand. We had this change of coach. Peter Moores was uh, sacked. And we had Paul Farbrace in charge. And he seemed to get the team to play with a smile on their faces, to relax, to enjoy playing and be positive. And he had a great effect on the style, the adventure, the new young personnel in the team that was selected for the ODIs. And he deserves a lot of credit for it, actually. And that seems to have carried over to the test matches because... Just before the test matches, if you remember, Bayliss, the new coach, came in and a group of the players and the captain went abroad for a break with him and Farbrace to get to know each other. And I think all this different atmosphere, which had rubbed off on some of the young players, and then the joining of, of the new coach, it just probably spurred out Alistair on Maybe they helped him behind the scenes. We can only guess at that. And maybe you're right, the questioner, that he says maybe the coaching staff helped him. Because in the first test at Cardiff, Alistair looked and was a different captain. He read the pitch well. Some balls were just stopping a little bit. So instead of having lots of slips and gullies and everything for the seamers, we had one and two men on the drive, offside and leg side, putting doubt in the batsman's mind about driving, because they might drive it uppishly. And he attacked the batsman a lot more. And Clark, he was overshadowed by Alistair Cook, no doubt. Clark had lots of slips and gullies, too many in fact, because he left England with too many gaps that they were scoring at five and over when Joe Root got in. And Cook out-captained Clark, no doubt about it. It was a wonderful surprise for England supporters like me. And then England out-battered and out-bowled Australia, and England won. And it's clear, and I think your question has got it right, but I, I can't prove it because I'm not in the dressing room, but looking at it like him, 
I think it's clear that Farbrace and Bayliss are, are totally different from the previous regime of Moore and, and uh, the, the gentleman he mentioned. Um, they take a back seat. They don't push themselves into the limelight. They push the captain forward. They seem to encourage the captain to come to the fore, to go and make decisions, to be a proper leader. And that's the way to do it. In fact, what it is really, it's not coaching, it's man management, isn't it? It's managers, which I talk to people about. And I say, listen, they're not coaches, they're man managers. And, and when a team loses, like Australia, the captain often looks poor and his decisions don't come off. And when a winning captain makes decisions, he always looks better because his team are the better team. Things are going well and everything he does tends to come off. The catches are caught. And we have to hope that Alistair keeps it up because this has been a better series for him and a much better series for England. Well, indeed. And since you spoke of Adil Rashid, let's take this question sent by Sajid from United Kingdom. He says, Dear Jeffrey, with the Ashes one, do you think Adil Rashid should be given a chance in the fifth test at the Oval? If yes, whom would you drop out from the present side? Sajid, I'm not a big believer in giving people a chance, as you call it. Players who have played in England's winning Ashes team will say, why should I give up my place just to give another guy a chance? And that's a good question. And if I was playing, I'd say he's not bloody playing in my place. I earned my place. And um, unless I get injured, unless a player gets injured, or the pitch really cries out for a spinner, then I think all the players will want to play and deserve to play. There have been times in the past when too many ordinary players have got a game for England. My view is 3-1 is an amazing turnaround from 5-0 when we lost badly in Australia. And my advice would go and make it 4-1. <laughs> That's the way competitive sports should be played. Rashid should have played in the West Indies. No doubt at all. On merit, all three test matches he should have played. It's a big mistake by Cook and Peter Morris to leave him out. There were slow spinning pitches, as I've mentioned, unhelpful to seamers. And if he had been selected, England would have won all three test matches, in my opinion. And he should play on merit in UAE and Pakistan, but not just to give somebody a chance. So, Jeffrey, would you want to change the winning combination at all? And would you play... James Anderson, if he's not 100% fit? I wouldn't play James Anderson at all, even if he declares himself fit. And the reason for that is, I think growing injuries and rib injuries for bowlers are dodgy. Because you can bowl in the nets and think, I'm all right, but then when you get into a game, match game, and you're under pressure to make the ball move a bit more or put a little bit more in energy and bowl a bit quicker, that's when it goes. And unfortunately, we don't have substitutes at cricket to bowl for a bowler, just like a guy comes on at football and somebody gets injured. So you can't afford for somebody to go in who's liable to break down. And there's no point in him playing. We've already won the series. So don't risk it. And I don't think he'll play. I think England have called him up in the squad so that for two things. One, they can give him treatment that's needed every day is there. And two, we can join in the celebrations because he was a very important part of England winning the test. Well, fair enough. And uh, let's end this episode with one question on the careers of Michael Clark and Kumar Sangakkara. Venkat from India says, Jeffrey, this week we will see the end of two glorious test careers. 
Clark and Sangakkara, who were also captains of their sides. Which batsman did you enjoy watching more? And who, according to you, will be missed more by the neutral cricket fans? Well, I enjoyed watching both players. But look, Mike and Clark in the past has been an excellent batsman. Absolutely excellent. Against spin, he was terrific. But what's happened now, certainly in the last year and a bit, he's become poor against the short ball. He's been lucky that he's batting most of his career at number five. He's made most of his big runs at number five, not at number four, away from the new ball, because many times at five you get in when the new ball has gone. You know, somebody's played quite well and whatever. It's not often you lose three quick wickets and you get in. Only in England, probably, but not in most countries. And so, at the moment, he's got a problem with the short ball, and Australia can't miss him and won't miss him because he's gone. Sorry, it has. That's not being cruel. It's being honest and factual. He knows it. He knows it's gone. It isn't there anymore. What he had isn't there. It's gone. That's why he's retired now. He's made the announcement before the end of the series. Stop all speculation. So everybody knows it's, he's going to play at the Oval. And even if he fails, he's made his decision. So they're not going to be speculating about, oh, if he fails, he might go... He's already made that decision. He's going to finish first-class cricket. He may play some 2020, big bash and all that, but it comes to most people, the end of a career, the end of an era. It'll be sad, disappointing. He didn't want to go out this way. When he has time to allow his disappointment of the Ashes series to heal, and it'll take time, trust me, it'll hurt him. When he has time to sit down and assess his batting in calmer moments, he will probably admit to himself, not necessarily publicly, that these last 12 months have been a year too much. And coming to England to try and win the Ashes in England after winning them in Australia was a bridge too far. He's had injury. He's not played a lot of cricket. He played the World Cup. Wonderful. They got there and won it. But a lot of other people did it, not necessarily him, until the final. I watched cricket very carefully. And England had sussed out in England, 2013 was he, and in Australia when we went there in 13-14, that he wasn't handling the short ball very well. He got away with a bit in England. He's made a fine hundred at Manchester, the Old Trafford. But they sussed it and they went after him in Australia, they've been after him here. Broad in particular, he doesn't pick up very well, spearing into his body. Tall man broad, high action, got nice pace, and he's found it awkward. And once that happens to a batsman, no matter what class, what quality you have, once that happens, the bowler's sense that you're not playing that short ball well, you have had it. Because they know it, and you know it as a batsman in your head. Your whole mental process goes. And once it's gone, once it's got into your psycho, psych and your psychology is there, the mental process is so different that it's difficult to get it back. And I think he's right to go, and it's been a year too far for him. Now, Sangakara, Sri Lanka will miss him. We'll all miss him because I actually think he's still batting very well. He's... Very, very fine player. But I get the impression, 
And I did speak to him uh, personally at Wimbledon this year. We were both in the Royal Box and we sat chatting. With his wife was there, he's a very nice man. And I talked about it. And I get the impression from what he said to me that it's the travelling, the non-stop playing, the fielding, the going to nets, you know, the practising has all taken its toll. I'm actually surprised he played county cricket this year and didn't take a rest when he could. Because international cricket is so taxing. There's so little leisure time. Now, it's like, you're like a jumbo jet, a 747. A jumbo jet, you know, doesn't earn any money unless it's flying. If it's on the tarmac, it doesn't earn any money. It's like cricketers today. If they're not playing, they don't earn any money for themselves or for their associations. And this constant playing of practice, going to nets, packing, unpacking your gear, packing, unpacking your suitcase, different hotels, traveling on planes and buses, all this, you know, gets to you in the end. And for all the main countries around the world, they're all the same. They get handsomely paid, the main countries. The players, very well paid now, play a lot of international cricket. A lot of television money goes into all the countries so they can pay the players much better than ever. And then along comes the IPL for, what, six, seven years we've had it, and it's made the best players, like Sangakara, wealthy. It's the cream on the cake, and good luck to him. So hardly anyone turns down IPL because of the money. It's enormous. You can't turn it down. But that playing for your country, constant playing, then the IPL on top, that can mean burnout by the mid-30s. It becomes a chore, not fun. And I think that's what's happened to uh, Sangakara. A wonderful batsman. I think if he just had to bat, he'd be fine. But I think Italy, he just said, I've had enough. <laughs> I'm tired. Mentally, you get tired, not just the body. And I think it'll be hard for Sri Lanka to find a batsman of that style and that quality, that elegance, won't find it quite so easy. That's true. And a bit of contrasting end to the careers of Clark and Sankara because of the form they have been in the last 12 or 18 months. And then I'm afraid is the end of this episode of Bowler Boys. There's a lot of cricket happening, just like Jeffrey said. New Zealand team is in South Africa. India are playing in Sri Lanka. That's Sankara's farewell series, of course. So send in your questions about all of those, your feedback as well. And in two weeks again, Jeffrey Boycott will join us for another episode. Until then, goodbye and good luck. You are listening to ESPN Crick Info.